0: Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Joining me here this morning at Wilton, I've got uh, Paul and Tony, and joining us on Zoom, we have uh, Cynthia, Keith, Joe, Mark, Matt, and uh, Nicholas, who's joining us for the first time. So uh, thanks to one and all for uh, showing up since I had mentioned in my email on Monday that uh, I wasn't gonna let you know in advance what the talk was gonna be about because I didn't know. <laughs> I figured inspiration would uh, would hit and it, it did. In fact, uh, the way it did was uh, kind of calling to mind for me uh, a theme that I thought would be showing up uh, from time to time in Dharma talks, going back to uh, when I first retired, which was over three years ago now. Uh, one of my retirement projects was to spend uh a fair amount of time doing a deep dive into Shakespeare and recognizing that uh, there was a lot of Dharma to be uh, dug up with, with uh, his, his writings. So I, I thought that might inform some future talks and uh, what I'm gonna share this morning uh, comes from that initial intention I had those three plus years ago. Uh, kind of a coming together, you might say, of Dogen and Shakespeare. So first the Dogen piece to this, which uh, actually we just looked at uh, not that many weeks ago when we did our uh, study of uh, his earliest work, Fukan Zazengi. And one of his best known lines from that, In our chant books, it's at the bottom of page 17, but you don't have to dig it out. I'm going to read it for you. It just consists of a few short sentences. It's uh, after he's given his description about the posture, uh, how we position our body as we settle into uh, sitting meditation. He says, once you have adjusted your posture, take a breath and exhale fully rock your body right and left and settle into steady immovable sitting think of not thinking not thinking what kind of thinking is that beyond thinking this is the essential art of zazen beyond thinking sometimes referred to as non-thinking This is what I wanted to talk to talk about this morning, uh, bringing Shakespeare into the mix. So usually, when uh, when I'm teaching uh, an introduction to meditation, and this is something I think all of us can relate to, uh, there's this phenomenon that we refer to as monkey mind where the mind is just bouncing around one thing after another, after another. But that's not what I'm gonna talk about this morning. (laughs) I I put that out there simply because it's kind of the other side of what I am gonna talk about. What I'm going to talk about is when a thought kind of gets deeply planted in us. So it's not the monkey mind phenomenon at all. It's becoming kind of obsessed with with a thought or a general theme uh, uh, that links several thoughts together. And this is what a, a great many of Shakespeare's plays revolve around. That's uh, why I wanted to bring them into the mix here because it's something along with monkey mind I think we also have a lot of experience with. But a lot of the attention gets uh, driven by monkey mind. Uh, So I want to go to the other end of that spectrum and look at how we can have thoughts that get planted in our minds, sometimes by others, sometimes uh, maybe another person kind of triggers it, but we're really kind of doing the self-planting. I'll give examples of both of those drawn from uh, various plays by Shakespeare. I mean, one of his best known plays, Hamlet, uh, and these plays usually Uh, very early in the play uh, and so that they can become the driving force of of the uh, play. Uh, It's early on that that these thoughts get planted. Of course, in the opening of Hamlet, it's about the ghost of Hamlet.
1: Hamlet's father uh, plants the idea that he had been murdered and
0: off the play goes. And this thought drives the whole rest of the tragedy that unfolds, tragedy for Hamlet and tragedy for many others. You know, the stage is littered with dead bodies before this thing comes to an end,
1: driven by this one thought that gets planted. And that one thought becomes...
0: Uh, the driving force of what many would consider to be uh, perhaps the greatest play in the English language. Fixating on a thought. Another one of his uh, great tragedies
1: was Othello. And here, uh, Iago plants the thought
0: in his mind. It, it uh, gives, gives rise to the intense jealousy Othello all of a sudden feels with his wife Desdemona, his new wife. they just been married, and this becomes the driving force at This
1: this thought that's been put in his mind. and he can't get his mind moved off, off from it. Or how about King Lear?
0: Here's a, a situation where uh, it was triggered by, by somebody else, but it was really Lear's uh, kind of delusional take on that that caused the problems. I mean, when Leard as an old man, decided he was going to step down from from his uh, reign as king and turn his vast holdings over to his children, which was going to happen when he died anyway. So he had three daughters, the youngest of which was his favorite, Cordelia. And he gathers them all together and he wants to kind of relish in the love of his three daughters. So he has each of them kind of sing his praises. What a wonderful dad he is. How much they love him. Uh, and kind of sets it up that based on that performance, you know, that will determine what, they, uh, what their takeaway is from, from the Lear estate. And uh, the oldest two are the first to speak and, and they're up to the challenge. I mean, they, they pour it on pretty thick and heavy. Uh, the youngest, Cordelia, who, as I said, was Lear's favorite, uh, she's, she wants nothing to do with that kind of, uh, of just
1: making uh, a spectacle like that about
0: something as sacred for her as, as her love for her father. She wasn't going to go down that path. That would have been, been demeaning to her of, of both her and her father and their relationship. So she, she had nothing to say, which of course he was already, because of his age, another one of the themes, he was kind of tottering anyway in terms of mental well-being and this just pushed him over and she ends up being completely disinherited and this again is the driving force of the play until finally you know he does come around to to see because of the uh, uh, subsequent actions of his two oldest daughters that actually Cordelia was the true daughter, the one who did truly love him and was devoted to him. Uh, But by that point, it was kind of too late. So again, uh, the stage is littered with dead bodies. By the time we get to the end, because of this thought that came up for Lear, that uh, Cordelia, his favorite daughter, did not love him. She, couldn't have, she didn't have a word to say and to sing his praises. And then finally, not to beat a dead horse, but uh, Macbeth starts the same way. And again, in the very beginning, he's coming back from, from his great battle for his King Duncan and his encounter with the three witches. They plant the thought in his mind. Clearly, because of his role in this battle, uh, you know, he was going to see his status elevated. But these witches planted the thought in his mind that actually he was, his, his future elevation was going to be higher than he had anticipated. That they planted the seed that actually he was going to become the king. And we know where that went. <laughs> And uh, he gets home to his castle, and his wife uh, becomes kind of an accomplice here, too. So she starts to reinforce that thought. So all of these, just examples. And, you know, another one uh, that's one of my own favorites. If you've never seen it, I highly encourage you to watch the the film that Kenneth Branagh uh, did a number of years ago, Much Ado About Nothing. I like that one just because of the title as it relates to Buddhist teachings on nothingness, much ado about nothing. (laughs) And it's kind of what I've just been laying out where you take something like the Iago poison that gets poured into the ear of of Othello. That's nothing. There's no reality to it. But much ado follows from that. And are we familiar with this phenomenon in our time? Obviously. Facebook, Twitter, what you do about nothing?
1: Planting poison, poisons. These thoughts that get imprinted. And the amount of harm that they cause. Shakespearean tragedies for our time. So then to come back to Dogen, this
0: practice of non-thinking, beyond thinking. When we encounter these thoughts, because sometimes we can generate them, but many other times they're planted within us from an external
1: source. How will we work with those?
0: Do we become, do do they take like seeds that are planted? Do they start to spring roots, take root and start to grow
1: until they become a dominant force in our mind? So Dogen's teaching of the practice of Zaza, his
0: recommendation for that practice, Universally, which is what Fukan Zazengi means, couldn't possibly be more relevant than it is for us today. To be able to go beyond thinking when these seeds, these thoughts are taken in, to not get caught by them. And to watch them unfold like a Shakespearean tragedy
1: with all the harm that ensues. So there's that. Related to that, the
0: other, the other uh, subject I wanted to, to touch on, uh, and because I'm kind of it starting a bit of a dive into this uh, in terms of looking into it, uh, I suspect this might uh, be co- coming up again in future talks, is this driving force of greed and how it becomes kind of, uh, rather than an individual thought, it kind of becomes the, the driver behind an entire way of thinking that becomes so pervasive in fact, that we can actually become almost blind to it because we're all caught up by it. Uh, A book that I've just uh, started reading over the course of the past week is called On Corruption in America. And what is at stake? The uh, author's name is Sarah Chase. And it's it's a fairly recent book. Uh, But she opens this Talking about the invention of money and what that did, and uses a couple of uh, of stories that that what and one of these she explicitly connects the uh, origin of the story to the. Uh, Invention of money, that being the myth of King Midas. I think we all are familiar with that story, where uh, uh, just just the backdrop was that uh, he had uh, a saved, kind of uh, rescued uh, one of the satyrs uh, from uh, from uh, Dionysius's gang, and uh, And he was rewarded by being uh, kind of given the opportunity to make a wish that would be granted. Wished that everything touched would turn into gold. The origins of money originally, they were like gold coins. So uh, he wanted just without end, which is kind of what money is about if it was food or uh, livestock or wood, fuel for for heat or cooking, uh, you would reach a point where clearly well, it was enough. But with money, you don't have those limitations. It's never enough because it it covers all the needs you you have. And the ones you don't even know you have yet. (laughs) But you're ready for them. Bring those needs on. I'm game. I'm in the market here. So Midas all of a sudden, having had this wish granted him, uh, initially he thinks what a great thing. He's going around touching things and they become gold. And he becomes just unfathomably rich but then he goes to kiss his, his daughter who he dearly loves and she turns into gold and he can't even eat and he goes to eat something as soon as it touches his lips it turns into gold so he goes back begging to have the uh the wish uh revoked fortunate for him uh, and everything around him, it was, it was. Obviously the moral to that story is uh, is just this teaching
1: about the impact that greed has and how it can become so destructive. And the other
0: teaching she utilizes is uh, is one that actually is very rarely spoken about from from the New Testament that's uh, Jesus in the temple the money changers the temple kind of serving as uh, as uh, both both a, a house of worship and wall street headquarters and Jesus going through and not acting very (laughs) Christ-like it kind of blows up it was so so offensive and as she points out in her account of that she has uh gatherings with ministers and they're very open about the fact that that's a real uh People
1: don't like to talk about that. It's really hitting too close. Because we don't want to address this greed.
0: Our relationship to material well-being.
1: And the insatiable nature of greed. Again, not a particular thought, but yet
0: it's kind of a pervasive uh,
1: direction for us in our life. And it impacts our life in so many ways. So, I mean, just speaking for myself personally,
0: it's the most rewarding aspect of retirement. And it has a lot of rewarding aspects. (laughs) I'm not saying it's the only one. I'm just saying for me, I found it to be the most rewarding to actually find myself extricated from, from the economy in terms of earning money, being concerned about money, And of course, I still live in this society, so I'm still buying things and I still have a checking account and other financial accounts, but the relationship to money now is completely
1: changed, completely and totally. And that, you know, I I treasure. Uh, actually, not have
0: outside of my my social security check, which is fixed. So there's this is kind of my my ancient twisted karma from what I've done throughout my life. This is this is my karma, and to see it in that light, there's yeah, it's just my support and the savings I have. But to not be engaged in that uh, that whole process any longer. To just use money to acquire things, to take care of my needs. And that's it. And talk about liberation as we do
1: in Buddhism. That is hugely liberating. Hugely. And I still
0: buy books, but actually after after I first retired, I was using the library for the most part. It was only COVID that kind of <laughs> and the libraries closed down. I was <laughs> back to buying books again. And now that the libraries have reopened, I haven't gone back to it yet. Mainly, because when I buy books, you know I can mark them up and <laughs> and being a teacher, I find that it is helpful that way. So but, but uh, that was part of my extrication uh, upon retirement from the economy it was just, for the most part, unless it was one of these esoteric Buddhist books uh, that, I wasn't going to find it at the library. Most of, most of the things I, I read are, are readily available there. And I had decided that's that's how I'm going to go about it. A good friend of mine had, had done that a uh, long time ago. So you know, I guess to come around and kind of begin wrapping this thing up, uh, this notion of of beyond thinking clearly in terms of of the thoughts that we can become obsessed by to to go beyond thinking means that we kind of aerate you might say if we're going to use this uh, this metaphor of of thoughts becoming implanted we create uh, we kind of create this space around them so that they can become interactive with everything else around our lives. In other words, as we know from the teachings of, of uh, Prajna Paramita, with everything. To make sure that we're able to do that with all of our thoughts. Don't wall them off, which is when they become.
1: The dominant force for us. Our thoughts are important, but they only can, can really
0: realize their full potential when we create this space so that we can see their interdependence with all other things, all other beings then thoughts really can come alive and they can broaden our understanding rather than close it in. So rather than becoming uh, an ideologue who's just driven by a particular viewpoint, you can take a viewpoint and expand it outward and see it from many different perspectives, see various effects it has. And the world becomes a much richer place as a result, which is reality as it is. And of course, as Buddhists, that's what we're trying to, to get to, reality as it is, and being able to, to meet it on its own terms that way,
1: and interact with it accordingly. And Of course, when we bring money and greed into the picture, to be able to
0: awaken to that influence in our lives, all of us,
1: be aware, don't be in denial. Because it it touches each and every one of us. Without question,
0: it's all too easy to say, "Well, because of my practice, you know, I'm kind of
1: kind of walled off from that." Bullshit. It's so pervasive. And again, to be able to keep keep
0: that sense of greed in our awareness and to create
1: this space around it to keep coming back to how destructive it can be and to the
0: understanding that that beyond a certain point
1: of comfort Anything more is meaningless. So why would we
0: base our lives to such an extent on the
1: acquisition of more and more and more? Obviously, before I retired, I had a much higher
0: revenue stream and yet, with my retirement, and when I had a happy life, a very rewarding life, but I'd say my, uh, in retirement, my life has improved a few notches, despite the, the hit to, to the revenue stream. So, how important was that to my
1: happiness? Not very. not very at all, and that's true for everybody. There have been enough sociological, psychological studies done that bear this out. The evidence is there in our own lives and and from research that others are conducting, conducting on the matter. So to borrow that powerful spiritual uh, teaching from,
0: from, uh, from our Christian brethren, you know, give us this
1: day our daily bread. That which sustains our life. So we need
0: some material sustenance in various forms, not
1: just bread. Bread's just a metaphor. For all the things we need, yeah, we need food, but in addition, clothing, shelter, medical care, education, basic societal wealth that. Uh, should be available to everybody in an enlightened society. But then I'm straying into engaged Buddhism. We'll wait until
0: our next go around with that to to investigate that further. But I think we're all well enough versed in it by now to, to have a pretty good sense of how that plays out. In terms of incorporating our
1: spiritual path with our social path, our engagement with, with our fellow beings, sentient and non-sentient. So, these were. The reflections I wanted to share this morning, and uh, and my piece of it here, open the floor up for for your thoughts. Joe,
2: um, I, I must jump right in because this was so pertinent on many levels, and um, I I have two comments. Um, and I'll start out with uh, sharing something about myself that uh, I I really appreciate your thoughts about Shakespeare's Midas play and, and what that really, um, what that means to the way we look at things and, and our perception and, and how that affected you in, and sharing all your thoughts about retirement and, and your own happiness and so forth. And, and that's especially pertinent because next week is my last week of employment. <laughs> and, um, and then I am free. <laughs> uh, you're, you're mute. I, I can't hear you.
0: I, I got muted somehow. I, I knew it was kind of in the future for you, but I didn't know it was imminent.
2: Wow. So I, I was listening very keenly at every word you were saying just now. So thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you for that. Um, also, um, you you first started out talking tonight about how thoughts are planted in us. And um, I, I just... Last week, in the last week or two, I've been reviewing Thich Nhat Hanh's book on the Eightfold Path, and uh, I wanted to, I, I have this underlined, and I wanted to share this with you, that um, he said, we have to look deeply into our perceptions in order to become free from them, and he goes on on the next page to say the practice is to go beyond uh-huh. ideas so we can arrive at the suchness of thing of things that no idea is the path of non-conception and, um, and as long as there is an idea there is no reality so i i think that was riddle that that concept was riddled throughout your introduction tonight and, I, and and I was remembering this along with listening. So again, thanks for your talk tonight um, or today, this morning. Uh, I, I appreciate it. thank
0: you. Thank you, Joe. And uh, boy, I'm so happy for you with
2: that big event. Yeah, I'm looking forward to
1: it. <laughs> Great. Great. I know Mark keeps talking about his uh,
0: plans for retirement. Maybe you'll help to inspire him to
3: <laughs> to move along. <laughs> yeah, I I've been um, I moved over to the contract world about 2015, um, and uh, just recently. Since uh well, the beginning of the year, I've kind of cut back to about maybe 50%.
1: <clears throat>
3: and the kind of work that I do, I can I can pretty much uh you know work as much as I want or as little as I want. Uh, I am kind of like weaning myself off of it and um I am feeling more and more greed for retirement.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But just see, uh, retirement is for the benefit of all beings. So greed is to to take it in just as a personal thing, but many will benefit, That's, that's the important thing.
3: Well, you know, it's funny because I've, I, I have had a lot more time on my hands the past, especially the past couple weeks, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I, I, why don't, the, 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 time, the time has flown by. Every day, the time just flies by, and I have... I have plans, like I even wrote down goals for each day, such as you know, starting with coffee, <laughs> you know, and and med- you know, coffee and meditation, you know. I go down the list. I I I literally wrote them out on piece of paper, you know, my goals for um, how to spend my free time each day, I mean, exercise, walking the dog you know, some, some reading. Um, And, and I can't fit it all in. It's just amazing how the time just like literally flies by. And, and I, and I feel greedy for more time. Like, I, I feel like, oh man, what am I doing wrong? Because I'm letting all this, I feel like as if I'm squandering the time and I, you know, I do know that there are, like you said, you mentioned something about um, the point was it the poisons of Facebook and uh, Instagram or these kinds of, and, and they are time wasters because I find myself, you know, kind of, you know, and Checking those things and then getting sucked into videos or whatever stupid stuff. Um, but uh, I lost my train of thought. But anyhow, I, <clears throat> so about the uh, the evening gatha. I think uh, you have to be careful with that evening gatha because I that goes through my mind. About not, uh, what does it say about not squandering time? Yeah, do not squander your life. Mhm. Yeah. And and uh, you know, it's like, okay. Uh, what what does that mean? Do not squander your life. And when you do have more time on your hands, you know, whether it's retirement or you're independently wealthy, <laughs> you know, or whatever, even even. Even working, you know, I look back on my life and I think, God, did, was I doing the right thing? You know, the right kind of work. <laughs> but, you know, uh, anyhow. Yeah.
1: Um,
3: it, my, my advice would be uh,
0: just you know, standard Buddhist teaching about the preciousness of each moment, that if we begin to have that realization, that understanding, everything else will naturally come of that. We don't need to to feel guilty about things in the past. We just need to, if we're actively practicing, then each moment is precious. Because each moment is practice, whatever it is we're doing. It's not limited to just certain special things. And then if we're constantly living our life in such a fashion, uh, you can't possibly squander your life rather than worrying about, you know, am I squandering my life this way or not? Uh, Rather, it's more just an understanding because while I don't do social media, you don't even have to do that, just go online. And I, I do have email and things are popping up in my email. You know, get all these things from the New York Times. And, and I've, I've learned I have to just scan those quickly and and not to be drawn in by so readily, like you're saying, because it's all getting laid out there and whatever the format might be and to become just recognizing, like they're saying, all these things to, to, to be involved with. I don't want to be find myself sitting here for the next hour or so, so I can click on these things that just kind of generate a little bit of, of uh, attention. So I, you become kind of just through awareness, being aware of the preciousness of time to be able to quickly scan through something and just delete the whole thing, say no, there's nothing here. On the on the other hand, there are things where there might be a uh, a longer piece that's going to take me 20 minutes to read it, uh, but I decide this is a worthwhile expenditure of my time. This is really engrossing. You know, this is something that might show up in my next Dharma talk, and you guys know how that plays out. So. Uh, you know, just to become kind of the discriminating piece to our practice is to uh, to try and manage our, our activity skillfully that way and not be so easily pulled in. Because as I've said before, that's what the entire media realm is designed to do is to pull us in. And if we're not... Asked, oh, awareness with that we will be pulled in it's inevitable because they're masters at it. they've studied this in great depth they're very good at it. and they know what works for each and every one of us it's tailored yeah. if I get an email from Amazon you know they they they're not as good at it as they could be. Their algorithms aren't perfected yet, but it's a work in progress. I'm sure they'll get better and better over time. Maybe I'll end up one of these days opening everything. Now I can just look at the subject uh, line. If it's, it's something like books in general, uh, it's immediately deleted. I know. <laughs> I'm going to get this list of, t- of bestsellers, none of which is going to be of any interest. So why am I going to even open that? But if they come up with some, uh, you know, like, Dogan book, obviously. <laughs> they know I'm gonna open that thing, and they might have 12 titles, uh, only one of which is on Dogan, but uh but they're gonna get me to open it. And they're obviously tracking all of us. So C. Dean Dogan. <laughs> the algorithm is telling. <laughs> He's a soft touch. <laughs> or a new John Coltrane release. <laughs> <laughs> he will open it guaranteed
3: <laughs> yeah I, I find myself um, consciously moving over like if I am gonna do something on my phone you know uh, if I have some extra time to uh, like do the New York time games and, um, you know, even that I have to be discriminating because I can get sucked into they have so many games. And it started with Wordle mm-hmm. and, um, you know, then they have the spelling bee and um, all, they have a whole bunch of games. You can sign up or you can have a subscription in the New York Times just for their games. Yes which can be very time consuming, but I, you know, in my mind, uh, they're definitely more meaningful than going down some other rabbit holes that you could find on social media or whatever. I'm building my vocabulary. Keeping the mind active as we age—that's important.
1: <laughs> I'll just share
4: real quick. The uh, what, what came to mind was uh, when when you were opening up opening your talk too was uh, a marketing class I had to take years ago where, um, the professor explained it, that what marketers want to do is get you to identify with a product. You know, I, I made me always think about like my grandfather, where he was a craftsman guy and he had a craftsman lawnmower and a craftsman snowblower and cra- only bought craftsman tools that craftsman drill. And there was just no other black brand for him. And, uh, and then I've found that I found clothing that fits me right. And I like it. Now I'm a Duluth guy. Not only, I'm only going to buy Duluth. So once you identify as with a product or with something, and, and then you believe it and you just kind of associate yourself with it and you kind of belong to that brand, you know, it's kind of scary that way, but it's it all comes from that initial implant or, and he says, that's what marketing's goal is not just to get you to buy their product, but to identify with it and become, you know, a, a Pepsi guy or a Coke guy or a craftsman guy or whatnot so that, was, that came back to me when you were opening up about that early on implanting of, of things. That's all.
1: Very much. Very much. You can get
3: the most from Costco Kirkland brand. <laughs> That's the best deal. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> now,
0: Karen's husband Tom would say Pendleton, but you buy them used Pendleton shirts. He has uh, huh. more than he'll ever wear, I suspect. <laughs> but he's never bought any of them new. Hmm. I've never heard of them. Oh, yeah, they're out of Oregon. They are like way bigger than Duluth. <laughs> oh.
4: Well, I, I've got, uh, so I, yeah, I've got a brand like that I like too, which is Filson out of Seattle, it's been since, since the 1800s, okay. of, uh, handmade workwear. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I I remember when Tom uh, took Dean and I on the tour of his closet with all his Pendleton clothes. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it really was. You know, and he buys the stuff like at yard sales and probably online from people, you know, advertise it. And Karen, um, if something is ruined enough, she takes the material, uh, the good material, and makes things. But, but it was really kind of cute when he, with all his Pendleton clothing. <laughs> yeah. You know.
2: Yeah,
0: good question. So you started out with uh, thinking or no thought right. and then, um, you know, kind of somewhere in the eightfold path and I think it's uh, around right thought where it's kind of guarding the sense work, like as something comes up kind of not getting like there's that initial kind of right. moment and the bare awareness versus like starting to do secondary or tertiary thinking yeah. around it and then, this idea of kind of opening the hand of thought, all those pointing towards the same thing, like no thought, opening the hand of thought, it's all the Dharma teaching kind of pointing back to... I I think that's exactly right, yeah, yeah. And you can see the role of mindfulness there. So even though right mindfulness is another part of the Eightfold Path, but... uh, Each part of the path is interdependent with the others. So again, the teaching of of the uh, heart sutra, no path, is pointing to that. It's not saying there isn't mindfulness, there isn't uh, right view or right thought or any of it. It's that they don't exist in themselves. In that sense, there is no path they only exist as one part of this vast mosaic. So, and it's all driven by going beyond. In in the meal chant, there's a a powerful line, the mind is pure and goes beyond, thus we bow to Buddha. Very powerful Dharma. <laughs> You're ready to bow down. Absolutely. Yeah. The mind is pure and goes beyond. So in that sense, you know, we talk about purification as like it can be seen as some uh Theravadan practice that Mahayana has gone beyond. But it's it's still, we can see it in that way. It's just that we, we recognize that the purification is also empty. You know, that was really the, the powerful teaching of Hui Neng in the mirror uh, poetry about the dust settling on the mirror and that there's no mirror, there's no dust. But yet, you know, the... The uh, senior monk's poem about the mirror and keeping it clean, it was pretty good teaching, actually. <laughs> it's just that Pui Deng put that Pragya stamp on it, but it didn't take that teaching and just say, well, that's that's a garbage teaching. It was kind of opening that teaching up more so it couldn't be mistaken in some narrow view of purification, they, that you create this duality between, between something that's been defiled and something that's been purified, that actually it's in the defilement that that purification is also to be found. You know, we don't uh, live in a universe where it's, it's one or the other. And that's why Zen and and other Buddhist traditions as well are so deeply immersed in paradoxes. Is that if you go, when you start going more deeply into things, you start butting up against the paradoxes. And and every time that happens, that just signifies you've entered the the non-dual realm. You yeah, know, congratulations, <laughs> rather than despairing, saying, oh, my gosh, I've got down a uh, blind alley here. It's, uh, I know I'm wrong because this is the Western style of song You hit a paradox. Uh, it's a wrong term you made. You better backtrack. But in Zen, you know, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's like, boy, you picked the right path. Keep going. <laughs> You're really starting to get to the heart of the matter because you can't get there until you start encountering the paradoxes like purity and defilement. So, Zen has that other powerful line I mentioned before it cannot be defiled. Cannot. But conversely, it would also signify it cannot be
1: purified. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: We always have to make sure we, we, we don't get sucked in by something like that. We always have to uh, see it more fully. But if it can't be defiled, it can't be purified. Part of Zen practice is to become pretty adaptive immediately going there. Because if we hear it can't be defiled, then we're gonna come away saying, well, my path is a path of purification. In a way, yeah, but in a way,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> we have to be real careful there. We have to go beyond. That's the thing. We're going beyond. It's okay to purify as long as in doing that, you're going beyond purification.
1: Then you can purify.
0: <laughs> That's kind of like for first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. So you can come back to the world of the mountain, but but if you go get there by going through, there is no mountain. Now, that's the mountain you wanna be at. That's the place. You've really seen the mountain as it truly is. No mountain. (laughs) But you come back to mountain. That's how we balance. Between the absolutism, there is a mountain, and the nihilism, no mountain. When we come back to the middle path, we're back to the mountain, but it's a different mountain. (laughs) It shifted from the absolute to the middle way.
5: Um, In studying Nagarjuna's middle path, I My people that I'm studying this with, sometimes we really kind of get laughing about how he presents things because, um, you know, he'll kind of like teasingly throw something out there and you kind of are getting sucked into it to one side or the other, you know, not the middle way. And then, of course, he completely, (laughs) you know, negates the whole thing. And it's just like, you know, and, and we laugh about it because, um, you know, we're studying this um, and um, uh, it, it, it's just kind of, so like we had just had all these words, all these words just to
1: get
5: to right here, right back to the middle path. You know, it's it's been a really interesting study. Yeah, you because know. the words
0: are triggers for us. They they lead us. We're kind of conditioned right. to these dual right. ways of of experiencing reality. So that's why in the who was very skillful at that, and Dogen was was very uh, uh, an appropriate successor to, to you Nagarjuna know, because he was a master of the 13th century of, of kind of pulling you in and writing about how uh, like uh, painted rice cakes don't satisfy hunger, it's one of his great fascicles that's painted rice cakes are kind of like words, Dharma teachings. Uh, they don't satisfy hunger, they're not they're just words. But yet, at the end of that fascicle, his conclusion was no, actually, they do satisfy hunger. (laughs) He's he's just at being accepted Buddhist interpretations of teaching. So he'd pull you right along and then all of a sudden, you just pull the rug right out from under you and say, oh no. They satisfy hunger. Absolutely, <laughs> and then he could we, write, we, he could write we, we, the next week, and and he would say the exact opposite. He'd say, "Yeah, they don't satisfy hunger. Don't get pulled in by those." We he,
5: we've kind of we've kind of joked about uh a, a, a about a month ago when we were studying together. It was like, "Has anybody looked at the last paragraph in the book?" <laughs> You know, because <laughs> it just was like, you know, he does. He just goes back and forth and and then you just end up back on the middle path again. But it's like all these words and and Garfield's interpretation of it is there's just uh, we've kind of laughed about the words that he uses that some of them I've never seen before and probably will never see again again. Um, but uh, and that has been interesting—the discussion of his choice of words uh, to describe Nagarjuna. But uh, yeah, we kind of joked about it about a month ago. Did anybody look at the last paragraph of the book? <laughs> you know what 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 are going to be his last words about this subject? <laughs> what is it really going to come down to? And then you can just take away the whole rest of the book. <laughs> you know. Well, there's no last word <laughs> <laughs> no there isn't no there isn't <laughs>
0: words are interdependent
5: <laughs> yeah whatever well, and i've already read the whole you know all his verses so i really do know you know you're still just left out there hanging
0: hanging but but interconnected so, kind of,
5: oh, hand. yeah, oh, yeah,
0: yeah. We're, we're fully supported in our hanging, yeah,
5: yeah. Well, with each moment, we have a choice, so yeah.
1: I think you're
0: muted still. Or maybe
6: the. Oh, well, never mind. Oh, nice oh
5: now we can hear you.
6: Oh, can you hear me now?
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
6: Okay. Uh, piggybacking on a little bit on what Keith said about, about marketing and how we identify, I think we've got, as, as a culture, particularly in this country, there's an identification with the idea that I am an individual. And that really messes things up because that creates separation for all of us. And and I wrestle from time to time. I mean, in in the Bible, it says, sell all, give away all your possessions to the poor. But as an individual, people would say, well, that's really stupid because nobody's going to take care of you. And I'm recently retired. And because of the nature of the employment I have, I have to rely mostly on savings. And it's more savings than I need today. And so part of me says, well, I should give that away to the poor. But the other part says, well, I'm stuck in this culture that says you're an individual and you must take care of yourself or, or too bad. So I think there's a cultural piece of identifying with this idea of the individual uh, to the exclusion of the idea that we help and, and share with one another. And I, I just see that as a big problem for this country in particular. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah
0: this this uh, the cult of the individual I call it sometimes uh, absolutely that uh, uh, and kind of connects to uh, the theme of uh, neoliberalism that uh, that the best thing for society is if everybody follows their own selfish uh, interests and then you know all the boats are, are, are uh, rise with, with each individual, uh, or as Gordon Gecko so eloquently put it: "You know, greed is good. It's good for all of us. So magnify your greed." I mean, that was kind of the the attitude of the eighties. The realm of the, the time of, uh, of Reaganomics and Margaret Thatcher over. Britain. And that was the cult of the individual, and it's still very much with us uh, today, too. So, you know, in terms of what Max describing, I mean, it is one of the reasons why we do have to uh, just kind of put away to t- make sure that we're going to be able to care for ourselves. But uh, the middle, to, to to my mind, the middle path with that is uh, to 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 do that, but then you're just kind of putting aside, giving everything away till you die. That's why I think it is very important you invest a little bit of money in, in having a will
1: prepared.
0: So. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things I've done is organizations that I've been involved with through the years in, in volunteer capacities. Those that are still around, at least, and most of them are, or colleges I've gone to, to make sure that you know most of my assets upon death are going to go out to those folks. So I can't, like Matt said, you know, I can't give it to them now because you know I've got to take care of myself. But by, by not looking to, to, to lavish things on myself, kind of like the, the mentality that, well, if I don't spend it, uh, I can't take it to the grave with me. I mean, that's a pretty common mentality. You hear that sentiment a lot. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not about it's not to even see it as my assets. You know, these are social assets, but I'm keeping them in my silo for the time being because I might need them. You know, I, in fact, I know I'll need them, uh, a certain amount of them, even if I only have a week to live. You know, I'm going to uh, need somebody between now and, and uh, this time next week. Uh, but you know, we can, we can definitely make arrangements uh, so that when I don't need it anymore, that, that actually it is going into things that have been important, and in my case, for, for me, throughout my life, and other organizations too, that I have <coughs> worked with that just are doing really important work out there. So, we can kind of do both at the same time, I think. And that, that I, I, I think is actually kind of important that we do. We need to take care of ourselves in so many ways, including
1: financially. But I wouldn't see that as being connected to greed. I think we're ready to chant that. May our intention equally penetrate every
0: being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable.
1: I vow to become it. So, thanks again for joining us and uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend.